Welcome. Happy summer, everybody. We just uh, skipped two seasons and we just moved right on. I was pulling into the um, parking lot and I was expecting to pay $7 for parking. I mean, I'm just so convinced we are right back where we started uh, a few uh, months ago. We're going to try it again, see if we get it right. So welcome. Glad you're here. What a beautiful morning we're going to have today as we continue a fantastic series. But I, I am very, very excited about our mission and outreach um, team. Uh, anybody on the mission and outreach team here? Cooper? Uh, Dernell? Who else? Debbie, anybody else? Um, Lloyd and Susan? We've got some great people that have been leading our mission and outreach with Dennis Wadley. And this is just one of many things that we have prepared. And my hope and dream is, is that we will have many opportunities for us to stick our feet in the water, get connected locally and globally. And a lot of us, you know, it, it's a big reach globally, but there are so many opportunities locally. So uh, I just want to encourage us when there's the opportunity presents itself, jump in, get involved. This is a way that we can make a difference in the South Bay as the River Church. I mean, we are, right? We're, we're all about, we're hopelessly, helplessly relational, pursuing what? What, what? what are we doing? We're devoted to the words and ways of Jesus, and we're pursuing cultural change and cultural renewal and life change, all for the glory of God in the South Bay and beyond. That's who we are. So we are fulfilling our mission by being uh, open to um, uh, connecting in other communities. And I love the way Russ uh, phrased it. We are connecting. We are going. We are, they they want to meet us as much as we want to connect and love on them. Okay, let's continue on in a series that we've been in. And I'm, I'm so f- thankful to be back with you. A lot of weddings, a few memorial services. Um, uh, we were at a conference last weekend down uh, in Orange County with uh, the Luis Palau Ministry. If you've never heard of the Luis Palau ministry, Luis Palau was an, evangel- was an evangelist. His family has taken on, his son uh, Andrew has taken on his role uh, as the evangelist across the world, leading festivals, leading hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. Large gatherings have been going on for years. And Luis Palau, an Argentine who came to Christ, mentored by Billy Graham. Uh, and in all respect, I mean, just an incredible man that has reached so many for Christ. And we were listening and hearing about uh, the work that that ministry is continuing on. And, and I had this amazing opportunity to connect with a pastor from Portland down there that uh, brought a very powerful and challenging word. And you'll hear some of his message in this message this morning. And we are continuing a series where we're trying to bridge the gap between an Old Testament that some of us are not as familiar with and the life of Jesus. Because Jesus bridged the gap through his own life. Jesus explained his life by using the Old Testament. How do you explain your life? What are the things that you use to explain your life? That's what we've been talking about, the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is the story of the Old Testament. He takes the teachings of the Old Testament, God's story, grand story, and he he imports it into his own life as he describes this continuity between the Old and the New Testament. And that's what we're trying to do. Each week, look at a story of Jesus 
how did Jesus shape this story by using the Old Testament? Taylor, many weeks ago, began this series by uh, reminding us of Scottish philosopher Alistair McIntyre, who said these words, the story we find ourselves in or a part of is the one we tell ourselves. What's the story you're telling yourself? What is the story that you are living into? Jesus lived into a story with a rich history, 3,000 years, a grand story. And that's the story that Jesus lived into. And he was on point. He lived this life on point. This is the direction Jesus went based upon that story. What's the story that's guiding your life? Have you ever thought about it that way? I'll tell you my story just briefly. I don't have a lot of time. I know it's hot. I want to be careful and sensitive to time. But I grew up, and it was so interesting. I met this pastor down in Orange County this last weekend, spent some time with him, and, and I'm going to invite him to the river in January or February. He's living and working and doing ministry in East Portland where churches are dropping like flies, and he is reaching the inner city. He is reaching people that are unchurched. He's connecting with people. Josh White is his name. And he told his story that when he was one year old, his father left because of alcoholism and abandoned the family. And he grew up trying to identify himself on the basis of worldly standards without a father influence. I grew up, and I told him this, I said, it's so interesting. I share a passion that you have for the church. But I grew up, in a, grew up with a totally different story. A very present father, a very present mother, Life at my fingertips. Hearing confidence, encouragement. Uh, I mean, I grew up with such opportunity, it is ridiculous. Um, I heard uh, my father say so many things to me. Son, you can accomplish anything you want in life if you set your mind to it. Anything. I grew up hearing that from my father. Son, it takes money to make money. I, lear I, mean, I learned investments. I learned how to save. I learned how to properly balance and fi live financially with good stewardship. I mean, I learned all these amazing things from my mom and dad. I mean, on and on and on. And some things like TVs for losers, expand your brain, read, practice sports, music. And all sorts of things that he communicated, some good, you know, some his own opinion. And if you, if you don't charge the hill, you'll miss out on the thrill of the adventure. It's downhill. Go for it. And so I lived my life with this adventure, this rebellious, outsider, adventure seeker kind of experience. Live dangerously. Now it's kind of live semi-dangerously. I question. I challenge. I rebuild things. I blaze new trails. It's why I probably don't fit in the normal traditional church. And I've been kicked out of three. And I look back and go, I wonder why that's the case. I just don't fit. I mean, I really appreciate it when somebody looks at me and says, you're a pastor? I love that. I really take that on as a challenge. I... I I just live my life that way. That's my story. And yet what I wanted to do and I've desired all along is to take that internal 
risk-taking, challenge, blazing the trail, adventure kind of spirit and live for Jesus. What's your story? Jesus' story is shaped by the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 20, there was a group of skeptics that challenged Jesus' story. I'm going to call them deconstructionists. Modern-day deconstructionists. They were Sadducees. They were a sect of Judaism in the first century that challenged the theology of Jesus. They challenged the grand, bold story that God wants to tell of how he created us for relationship, in relationship with him, and put us in this, on this earth, this garden, so to speak, this, this epic, perfect universe, this cosmos that had all the opportunity. Go live in it. Thrive in it. And yet, because of our rebellion and stubbornness, we challenged God's authority and we fell from grace. And the rest of the story is how God redeems us. How he pursues every single one of us. And, and, and it all comes to a culmination in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the grand story. And the skeptics challenged the grand story of the Bible that is all about God redeeming us for all of eternity, all the way through to the end. I mean, into the eternity. What God began with, he will complete. The perfect creation, the garden, relationships, intimacy, thriving as human beings formed in the image of God, we will, in the end, continue on in that existence. That's the grand story. And the Sadducees thought it was going to come short. Their views and their objectives were different than Jesus's. And they challenged this theology. And so here's the passage, and I want to teach you what Jesus taught on. When he looks at the grand story, he calls it the resurrection life. Resurrection life is living into the fullness of Jesus in this life and forever. All that God has for you is in the resurrection life. And if you don't get the resurrection life, you will totally miss it. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why he rose three days later, later bodily resurrected, so that we could see the continuity between what God originally created and where he ultimately wants us to end up. Does that make sense? And so here's this passage. Sorry, that was a long introduction, way longer than I thought. But I'm going to go quick. I'm going to give you three ideas, three ways we challenge the resurrection living and what it is that we can do in order to counteract uh, these issues, these problems that we've encountered in our day and age. There were some Sadducees in verse 27 of chapter 20 of Luke. And these Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, it's in parentheses, it's so hilarious to me that the gospel writers identify these skeptics as people that don't believe in the resurrection. Like, seriously, get with the program. 
Like, did you not see the 5,000 witnesses? Have you not heard the testimonies of the entire community that is now spread throughout Palestine that Jesus actually did resurrect from the dead? And it really is going to change history. And could you imagine continuing on not believing that it actually happened in that day and age? That's what they're saying about these people. And yet that's how they began to deconstruct the, the story that Jesus was trying to build for us. They began by deconstructing the resurrection. And when you deconstruct the resurrection, everything else falls apart. If you don't believe in a resurrection, you can't get to the story that God wants to tell. And so here are these Sadducees, and they say they don't believe in the resurrection. They question them, saying, teacher, Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies and having a wife, he is childless, his brother should marry, and the wife raised up the children to his brother's. Now, there was this story, and it comes out of their writings, about this one woman that was married to seven brothers. One died, then the next died, the next died. And so she obviously had many husbands. And in the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And Jesus says to them three things. First of all, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to obtain that age and the resurrection from the dead, there is neither marriage nor giving in marriage. There's no marriage. Something greater is coming. Then he says, we will be like the angels and the sons of God being like the resurrection. So we're going to be like the angels in some way. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed us the passage about the burning bush when he calls the Lord God Abraham, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Jesus is trying to build an argument for the resurrection. Some of the scribes answer says, teacher, you have spoken well, for they did not have courage to question him. And that was the end of discussion. And what we find in deconstruction thought, which is a very popular word these days, which is, and I understand, this idea of breaking down one's childhood faith, one's involvement in the church, one's interaction with the Christian community. That's what deconstruction is. It's beginning to question and then hopefully rebuild off that. And I think that's a, it's, that's okay, as long as we don't so deconstruct that we lose sight of the grand story. Yeah, you may have been hurt in a church. Yeah, you may have come from a missionary family. Yeah, you may have grown up in, in an environment that has been oppressive or judgmental or whatever else you want to call it. But I see a lot of people, 30% of millennials right now, have left the church with no plans of coming back. I mean, I just read another Christianity Today article that said we don't need a deconstruction, we need a reformation. What I think we need is a resurrection. In the middle of your deconstruction, if that's what you're going through, there better be a, re there better be a resurrection. Because that's the foundation of your faith. Even in the midst of questioning, and the church right now is going through a crisis of identity, a rebuilding. Yes, people aren't coming back. And a Wall Street Journal article just indicated people have left during COVID. And 
will, if they do come back, will come back and it will be different. And, abs- and we understand that. And we have tried to develop a church based upon the resurrection teaching of Jesus. And in this passage, let me just get to it, three ideas. What the resurrection is not, what the resurrection is, and how do we live in the resurrection. Those are the three things I want you to take away this morning. And each one of them, there is a grand exchange that takes place. What the resurrection is not, we exchange a me theology for a we theology. It attacks a major problem, which is individualism. Number two, what, it's, what it is, we're exchanging this temporal perspective for an eternal perspective. And number three, how we live in it, we are exchanging a self-empowered life to a God-empowered life. There it is. There's the whole message. Three exchanges. Three grand exchanges happen to ha- have to happen in your life to live the resurrection life. There it is. From me to we, from temporal to eternal, from self-empowered to God-empowered life. There it is. That's the resurrection life. Where do I find that? Right here in the text. Number one. What it is not is what the Sadducees are describing. Think about it. The Sadducees are in superimposing their theology about the end times based upon what? Marriage. What is marriage? Well, marriage is an intimate covenant relationship between two people. It's what it is. God arranged it, designed it to be the picture of, of his relationship with us when he brought the woman to the man. I mean, that's the Genesis account. That's what we have is that beautiful picture of this intimate, dynamic, exclusive relationship called marriage. But guess what? It serves its purpose in this life. And Jesus is talking about something far grander. And when the Sadducees superimpose their view that if it's impossible to go into the resurrection with the marriage mindset, yes, because the marriage mindset is an individualistic perspective, and what God wants to do is change that to a corporate we perspective. One of the things that needs to change in the church today is individualistic thinking and move more toward a corporate we mentality. And what the Sadducees are saying is our way of thinking, marriage, One husband, one wife doesn't fit in the resurrection because that person could have been married to multiple people. And Jesus is saying, you're not thinking through it all the way. You got to think bigger. What he says is in the resurrection, in this age you marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain the age and the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are given in marry. He's not... He's not dissing marriage. He's elevating the reality that in the resurrection life, it's far more than simply an individualistic perspective. It's a corporate perspective. We enter into a body. In the end, we will all become the body of Christ, married as the bride to Christ. Not individually, but corporately. All throughout the New Testament, the language of conversion is a language of community. It is not an individualistic language. And one of the problems that's happened in modern-day church 
culture is that we have become far too individualistic in thinking. Sadducean thinking is it's all about me and my needs and my issues and what I need rather than seeing a larger perspective of what God, Jesus is doing in the resurrection. Resurrection living was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. And when he bodily rose from the grave and defeated sin, winning victory for us, a right relationship with God, he put us into a body. And if you're not in the body, you're not living the resurrection life. You're living an individualistic perspective. Carl Truman wrote a book. He's a PhD in uh, church history. He went to uh, uh, University of Aberdeen in Scotland. He's now a prof, and he writes this really strange article called Divine Therapy, Doctrine of God, and Expressive Individualism. And he starts the article by saying there can be little doubt that we live in an age where the individual is sovereign. And he goes on from there. And what the church has to do is is counter this with this idea that the church is a body, not individuals. Not your personal freedom, not your personal happiness, but the betterment of others. Finding identity not in self, but the body. 1985, I was at Cal, uh, Cal Berkeley in 1983, and I'm bummed I, I missed Dr. Bella, who was a sociology professor at Cal, and I really wished I had uh, taken his class because he was there when I was there writing this book called Habits of the Heart, where he looks at the, uh, uh, the, the beginnings in 1800s with de Tocqueville, who came from France and identified in America this massive individualism that is going to fracture the Americas in the 1900s. A calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows and withdraw into the circle of family and friends with this little society formed to his taste. He gladly leaves the greater society to look after itself. We are shut up in the solitude of our own hearts. And Bella points out a way that this finding oneself leads to pulling away from traditional religious community to follow one's own private faith. And that's where the church is now dissembling into. People searching for faith on their own when that wasn't the intention at all. I mean, my goodness, look at Ephesians. Just look at Ephesians. It says in chapter 4, I, I, I don't have time. Therefore, remember the... Formerly, you were Gentiles in the flesh. You were called the uncircumcision. But, but then, notice what happens. You were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth, strangers of the covenant, but now you, Christ through Christ, have been formerly, were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. The Gentiles and the Jews that hated each other, totally different theologies, totally different worldviews, now brought together in one church. Whatever you're doing, and if you're watching me online, whatever it is you call your church, does it look like this? If it does, go for it. Outstanding. But that's why we're part of resurrection living. That's why marriage isn't part of the resurrection life. Yeah, it's part of this life, and, and Jesus affirms that over and over again, how important the family and marriage is, absolutely. But there's something far grander going on. It's not just your personal happiness. Heaven is not your personal happiness. 
Heaven is about joining the body of Christ in glory to a grand creator that is launching us into a new era. Far greater thinking needs to happen here. So we've been brought near two groups into one. A new man, and this new man is not me, it's us. Reconcile both in one body. And then it goes on. You're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens having been built in the foundation of the apostles. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together and growing into a holy temple of the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling spirit. Listen to me a second. The reason why the river church exists, why any church exists, flawed as it may be, I just heard somebody just left our church because they wanted to hear the same pastor teach every single week. Well, you're not going to hear that here. I'm one of many communicators at the River Church because we have insane communicators, godly men and women that are so gifted in teaching and can teach from a different perspective than me that you need to hear to get a fuller understanding and that's okay. If you want to hear one person every week, same person, that's fine. That's okay. Go join a community that you can connect with. But if you're not connected, if you're still living an individualistic and your church doesn't look like Ephesians chapter 2, then I really challenge whether you're living the resurrection life. Are you pulling away? Are you hurt? Are you afraid? Are you just independent? And the me needs to transform to the we. And it's happening. And we're doing it. He's not dissing marriage. He's correcting bad theology that has created bad orthopraxy. Ephesians chapter 2. Genesis, we are meant not to live alone. Jesus doesn't devalue marriage. He's re-imaging our identity, our true eternal identity. And the church is the only organization that can do that. And by the way, whatever church you go to, your tagline should be, we exist for those that don't, are not the insiders, the outsiders. We exist for the outsiders, which always keeps us missional, which always keeps us forward thinking, which always keeps us, who's next? Who are we going after? We're moving our church location. We're going over to the Catalina Room in January. It's going to be exciting. And when you go from the Riviera and you walk down Catalina or drive down Catalina and then you finally get to the Catalina room on Garnet and Catalina right there by Torrance Boulevard, you have just driven by a zillion apartment buildings. We are opening ourselves up for the possibility of a grander mission than we've ever had before. We're not moving off the hill. We are taking the hill and moving it further and deeper into the culture in which we live. That's what the River Church is about. We've always been about that. It's about us and you playing a role and a part of that. And I want to invite you to come back. Stay connected with us. Yes, it doesn't necessarily mean you got to be here every single, have your butt in the sand every single week. I mean, I understand people travel and things happen, but if you have created a pattern or a habit of individualism or you have a selective community, you are missing the dynamics of a we and living a me-centered life. That's point one. 
Do I even have time for point two and point three? I will give them to you, but I will not belabor them. I promise. You got to hear the rest of it. That's what it's not. What it is, is moving from a temporal way of thinking to an adopting an eternal way of thinking. We got to drop the temporal. And the way Jesus does that in this passage is so clever. He says, we're going to be like the angels. Well, what does he mean by we're going to be like the angels? We're not angelic. So what aspect is he referring to? The aspect that he's referring to is the devotion of angelic beings, not the existence of angelic beings. We are like them in their devotion. If you look at the Bible and look at what angels do, they're devoted to God. They are solely devoted to God. We use the word hagios, which means holy. We are separate. But the angels cannot sin, we can. And so there's a caveat. We're imperfect, but we're devoted. And that should be the tagline of our church as well. We're devoted, but we're not perfect. And it's okay to be imperfect. We're devoted like the angels because we have an eternal mindset as opposed to a temporal. Colossians chapter 3 begins that we are to set our minds on the things above. That we are to be so focused, raised up with Christ, resurrection. Seek the things above where Christ is seated. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. And then for the rest of the chapter, it's about transformed relationship. When you gain an eternal perspective, as flawed as you are, devoted, because holiness just simply means you're devoted to the words and ways of Jesus. That's what holiness is. It doesn't mean you're perfect. We're, we're pursuing it, but we're far from perfect. And I think millennials today are looking for a new brand of church. A brand of the church that really lives out Colossians 3. A new image, a new self, renewed in the true mind. Renewal, renewal, renewal. Putting on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, putting on love, putting on love the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. What's that talking about? Social justice, concern for others, the poor, caring about one another. But we do it in a way in which we really maintain our true humanness. We're devoted, like the angels, but we're also really human. And I think the message of the church of the future is a message that says, in our brokenness, we're actually more attractive than in our smug holiness, whatever that means. When we portray ourselves as something better than we really are. When we are truly honest with our own personal struggles and failures, the grace of God exists. Martin Luther struggled with his sin. And it's really what led him to grace was the fact that he couldn't get over sin in his life. And, he, and, and, and frankly, he didn't sway from that view that now he's on to something better. He's having this conversation with Melanchthon, a good friend who's struggling as well. And he says, be a sinner. Let your sins be strong or sin boldly. Martin Luther said, sin boldly. But let your trust in Christ be stronger. And rejoice in Christ who is the victory over sin and death and the world. What a refreshing, a refreshing perspective. Sin boldly. If you're going to sin, sin boldly. But love Jesus even more. 
Because what that will do is temper an out-of-control, fleshly desire and bring that back into the love of Christ without crucifying it, without destroying yourself in the process by living a hypocritical, false pretense-based life. And the church needs to stand up and be honest and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Look back on the presidencies. Whenever a president stood up and said, I'm sorry, that's my fault, he doesn't get crucified. He's drawn in, he's loved, he becomes beloved. It's when they run from their issues, run from their failures, hide from them, blame somebody else. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in politics. It doesn't work in leadership. It doesn't work in the family. It doesn't work in parenting. But when we are honest and open and we thrive in forgiveness and love for one another, that's an eternal perspective. I begin to think eternally. Eternal. Eternal. That, that's all I want to say. And then one final last thing. How do we live it? Remember what it's not? It's not me, it's we. It's not temporal, it's eternal. Heavenly mindset. We're all going to be together. Let's love one another. Let's be devoted. And Third, how do we live it? Resurrection is ditching the self-driven, empowered impact on others in this world and now having a God-directed, God-empowered impact. The self-empowerment has to drop. And he uses, in the very end, the passage, which is the Old Testament passage, which proves to the skeptics that the resurrection is really true, that you can't deny it. Because the Sadducees would only use the first five books of the Bible in order to make their arguments. They wouldn't look at the prophets. They wouldn't look at the history. They wouldn't look at anything else like Daniel 12 or Ezekiel 37 or all the other passages in the Old Testament describe the fact that one day we will all be bodily resurrected. That's the way people believed in the first century. That's the way they always believed. But the Sadducees denied that and said there's no reference of it in the first five books. And then Jesus goes, oh, but you forgot about Exodus chapter 3, verse, uh, what verse is it, 6, where God comes to Moses who failed in delivering the people on his own strength and shows up in what? A burning bush. And then he says, Moses, see that burning bush? Just a bush. It's just a desert bush like every other one of them, useless, worthless, meaningless. But when it's on fire, something's changed. It becomes something different. And that's what Moses learned from God in the midst of this. And then God says to Moses, I'll tell you why. Because I'm the God of the living, not the God of the dead. I'm the God of your forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God of the living. And when God becomes the God of the living, guess what? He's the one who takes the power and control and puts it into the burning bush. Moses, you tried on your own. You failed. You tried to save the people of Egypt with your own power and your own strength. You got angry. You killed the Egyptian. 
You tried to do it in your way. Now, 40 years later, on the backside of the desert, I show up in a burning bush, and you see that burn, that flame in a burning bush, and what you see is me in you. And when I'm in you, everything's possible. Things will happen. Russ is going to completely finance all those staff members. We were down at this um, plow uh, president's forum, and these, these are people with lots of money, and this one woman that's a friend of um, my daughter's, came up and said, I just inherited $48 million. And I'm going to give away 70% of it. It was my father's business. My sister got, my brother got some, and I got some. 70%. Those people are out there, but so are we. I mean, does God need any money? It's already out there. He just puts it on people's heart. And when we understand the power of God and living in the context of the power of God, that brings continuity so that we no longer become self-empowered. We now become God-empowered. Thy kingdom come will come. It will come. On earth as it is in heaven. We pray about that. N.T. Wright spoke of the resurrection. That in this resurrection, this present world and these present bodies now have a continuity and have an enormous impact on the life to come. Power brings impact, brings continuity into the resurrection. You want to live a life of continuity? Because what God was basically saying is the, the patriarchs are dead, Moses. They're all gone. They serve their time, but I'm still the God of the living. I'm still their God because what they've done still lives on. You know why? Because I, what I did was the power in me is now living on, and it's having its impact today. So every single one of us can live the resurrection life. So let's celebrate resurrection life by joining corporately together and drop the me and become the we. Let's, let's live not a temporal life but an eternal life with an eternal perspective that's focused on others, being shaped by eternity, and let's also live fully and totally into the empowerment of God, dropping self-empowerment. Where are you living that life? And one final thing that N.T. Wright says that I absolutely love is that this is going to get you into trouble. Resurrection life is going to get you into trouble. I love that word. I really do. I live to get in trouble. I really do. I love that. And I want to get in trouble. I, I want to create chaos. I want to turn things upside down. He says, in fact, those who believe in the resurrection were thrown to the lions. It was never the way to settle down and become respectable. It was bound to get you in trouble. Do you want to get in trouble? Stand by the warmth of a burning bush. Let's pray. Jesus, Come now, we pray, Holy Spirit, and empower us with the empowerment that God brings. God, you are the God of living. We are like the angels with an eternal perspective, devoted, focused on the things above. And Father, we have been brought into a body, a grand body. We play a part, we play a role. May we become part of that and lean into that and rub shoulders with people so different than ourselves, Gentiles, Jews, male, female, free, slave, every class of people. That's the church. May we become that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening and uh, joining with us.
And I look forward to our grounded group and some good discussion. So when you are ready, the communion has now turned, been turned into wine, according to James. The, the grape juice is now fermented. And so uh, it's there, and on the top of the little grape juice is a wafer. And uh, come, come when you're ready. Ron's going to play a little music. And uh, come to the table. Come to the, to, the, to the crucifixion of Christ that led to the resurrection of Christ. Crucifixion always precedes a resurrection. Amen.